I've hired and trained a ton of salespeople in my career in different fields, right? Especially in life insurance. I mean, I probably had, I don't know, 100 to 150 agents come through my pipeline that I that I trained, got out in the field, they either succeeded or they didn't. Um, and I've trained, obviously, salespeople in other industries as well. I've only hired uh, and trained, well, I guess this is number two, two salespeople for Ellison Painting. Welcome to the Painter Growth Podcast, where we help you scale your painting company in record time. Join us as we explore sales, marketing, hiring, finances, leadership, and more, everything that you need to know to scale and grow your painting business. I hope you enjoy and subscribe. What's up, everybody? Mike Gorehickman here, founder of PainterGrowth.com, and you're listening to the Painter Growth Podcast. And uh, we have a friend of the show, Brad Ellison. Uh, owner and founder of Allison Painting in the Detroit metro area. What's up, Brad? Hey, Mike. Good to see you, buddy. Yeah, man. Stoked to have you on again. Uh, loved our conversation last time and uh, was itching to get back into it with you. Yeah, so, same. I saw that you uh, have already interviewed Nick Slavic twice and uh, only me once. So happy to be catching up. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I guess he has more available time on his calendar. <clears throat> Must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So I, I guess we'll, um, what I wanted to do is just because I always want actionable insights for painters before we get into some of the more fun stuff. Why don't we talk about some sales management stuff and bring it on sales reps and some tactics around that. Um, and then we can get into some, some dad stuff. Cool. Let's do it. Awesome. So I, um, I, I broke down kind of like what I felt to be like the process and I want to go through and some questions going down the process, like sequentially, we're, we're talking about it in order all the way from the start to actually bringing on a rep uh, and making them successful. So in your business, when you started, you, you first didn't have a sales rep. What do you notice are the main differences in your business, your time, your profitability of having a sales rep versus not having a sales rep? So having a sales rep certainly frees, should free up a little bit of your bandwidth as an owner. I guess for me, maybe maybe it didn't really free up much bandwidth because we just simply tried to double the number of estimates we were doing. So <laughs> the number of estimates that I did didn't necessarily decrease, uh, but the opportunities to sell did increase. Um, but what comes along with that is not simply more opportunities for, for sales and projects. It's more responsibility in managing that salesperson. And we should preface, I should preface this whole conversation with, I've hired and trained a ton of salespeople in my career in different fields, right? Especially in life insurance. I mean, I probably had, I don't know, 100 to 150 agents come through my pipeline that I, that I trained, got out in the field, they either succeeded or they didn't. Um, and I've trained, obviously, salespeople in other industries as well. I've only hired uh, and trained... I guess this is number two, two salespeople for Ellison Painting. And um, some would argue, me included, and maybe my sales guy, that I'm not necessarily the best at training and hiring salespeople. Um, so that's that's the preface, right? So we can, we can certainly talk about all this stuff and I can give you my perspective and best practices, but that doesn't mean that I am the, the master and uh, authority. <laughs> In this space, okay. So, so uh, um, this isn't the this isn't the gospel on on the sales bible. Correct, and the, the knowledge and the and my insight is probably pretty darn close to accurate. But in practice, I'm probably not the best. Uh, do as I say, not as I do. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, the difference is you you got to you have a little bit less control over what your customer potential customers are seeing. When I'm the only one doing estimates, I know exactly what's being said. I know exactly what's being delivered. And once you have anyone else doing that on your company's behalf, obviously you're losing a little bit of control over that, and that can be absolutely terrifying. How do you how do you mitigate against that into the best of your abilities? At one point, you have to do just release some control, but. And I'm sure there's been customers with missed expectations, especially when you're ramping a new sales rep. But what are some like, you know, preemptive things that you can do to help improve that customer communication process so that that doesn't happen? Well, the first thing I would say, and I've, and I've said this dozens of times before, is when you decide to bring someone on board, hire someone for core values and culture first. So the reason why that's super important to me is if I have a sales guy out and they're not entirely proficient at measuring and estimating and grammar, whatever. If I know that they're a core value fit, that their integrity is spot on, at least I know that my customer is being treated fairly and with integrity, right? Mm -hmm. That way I, I can deal with measuring mistakes. I can deal with job costing mistakes. Um, what I can't deal with is dishonesty, lack of integrity, all of that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's step one for me. Um, step two, of course, would be to have actually have sales processes in place so that the salesperson has actual operating procedures to follow. Now, that is something that I did um, before I brought a salesperson on. I actually had gone through and mapped out exactly what that interaction should look like with the customer from like when you're pulling up to the house, where should you park when you knock on the door? Where should you stand? When they answer the door, what should you say? So I had I have all that. And that was very helpful because at least I know, again, these people are at least mimicking what I found to be best practices for my company. Where we really discovered the the disconnect was the actual pricing component of it. And we're mm -hmm. still we're still dealing with that and trying to straighten it out. Totally makes sense. Um, and especially if someone's coming in and they're not coming from a painting background. Mm -hmm. Pricing can be something just completely unique, right? So, I mean, the way that I look at it is that there's there's two completely different skills that you're teaching a salesperson at the exact same time. One is the the sales skill, and the other is the estimating skill. Mm -hmm. So, how what is the process that you're currently using? I mean, you're not teaching anybody right now, but what did you do to teach pricing? Did you use something like drip jobs or uh, sumo quote or anything like that? So, fundamentally, all of our estimates. Uh, are based on measurements of some sort. Interior, I think, is much easier to measure. Use a laser measure. You figure out what the square footage is of the room. And based on whether you're painting just the walls, the ceiling, the trim, whatever, there's a multiplier that you use to come up with a price. Uh, you count up the number of doors. You count up the number of windows. That's The in interior has been has proven to be way easier to... Um, to systematize and make sure that we're giving consistent estimates, as consistent pricing between he and I, yeah. right? Still hiccups sometimes. You can paint drywall. Correct. Yeah. Right. Outside exterior estimates is where we were having a wide, wide array of prices going out. Jason Paris talks about you. You can provide estimates through um, intuition and experience, and that's what most of us eventually do. And that's certainly what I do. So like I was, I was selling for another company for five years, started selling on my own. 
I, I can look at a house and count up sections of siding and sections of trim and say, okay, it's going to be this price for the front, this price for the side, add it all up and I got my number. And I can do that 25 times every single week and from house to house, it's going to be very consistent because I have the experience and now I have the intuition to come up with, with the pricing. But the, this is all like special knowledge is happening in your head, right? And that's the, that's right. the problem. Exactly. And so the, the challenge as business owners is how do you translate that? How do you actually quantify that so you can teach someone else to do it? Hmm. So what I did is I, I kind of taught him what I did. You know, what is a section of siding for Ellison painting? Well, it's approximately eight feet wide and it's one story tall. And then whether it's aluminum or vinyl siding or unpainted brick, there's, there's multipliers. So it is kind of based loosely off measurements, but you're still kind of eyeballing it. Well, we need to work backwards even further than that. We really need to figure out, can we actually measure these surfaces, this, either the linear footage of the trim, the square footage of the siding, and come up with an actual like per square foot price that is easy to come up with. Uh, the square, the measurement needs to be easy to come up with. The, the multiplier needs to be easily accessible so that we can actually have consistent pricing. When I, when I first started selling for my old company, I didn't have any of that. My the, the owner was basically walked me around for two days and said, all right, so it's like one, two, three, four, all right, six sections of this, seven sections of that, it's this price. And I'm like, what is a section? What are we talking about? And he didn't provide me much, much guidance or, or resources. And so what I did is I went directly to my subs and I said, all right, how much would I need to pay you to paint the brick on the front of this house? How much would I need to pay you to paint the trim? And then I worked backwards and came up with some numbers, some linear footage numbers, square footage numbers. And for like a month or two, I was actually measuring, doing the estimates that way until I had the intuition and experience to now eyeball it and say, this is it, right? And then when I would ever, when I would check myself every once in a while, my estimates were very, very consistent. If I had measured it versus eyeball it, the price is the exact same. So the mistake I made is I taught my sales guy what I did. And then I tasked him with working backwards from that, saying, how, how can you now take this information and help me build out a repeatable estimating process so that when we eventually hire other sales guys, you and I can both teach them how to do it. Um, that came naturally for me when I had to do it for my old company. Didn't come super naturally for him. And so it was ultimately a failure. And it led to a lot of frustration on his end, right? Because he feels like I'm not giving him enough guidance. And frustration on my end because he's not selling enough and his estimates, you know, some of those estimates were actually, um, uh, I, I had to come out of pocket to paint people's houses. Um, and that's that's the nut that I didn't crack before I hired a sales guy. My, my mistake was assuming that people can operate like I can when intellectually I know that that's not always or maybe ever going to be true. I think that's a good lesson to learn. Um, it sucks, it's painful and it's costly to learn, but... Um, it sounds like the lesson that other people could take away from this is um, make sure you're ready, right? Make sure you have a system for estimating uh, and, and figuring out your numbers, whether it's a, a program that already exists or if you have your own production rate, just like it has to be something that you can pass to like a 14 year old to be able to do right in theory. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that that's the idea. If we're going to try to hire two or three more salespeople this spring, I need to make sure that everyone is estimating the same way. Yeah. Price has got to be consistent. Otherwise, my subs are going to kill us. Yeah. So so what did you do? What did you do next? Well, so we we transitioned into interior season. 
again, interior is, we have that way more dialed in. So for the time being, we're okay. Uh, but what we did is we, for a, a fourth quarter rock, it is to fine tune our entire sales process, including pricing. So what I've done is he had, he had put together and well, I, I had put together a pricing list. He had made some modifications to it. And now I've been going in and actually adding in solid numbers. This is how much it is per square foot for unpainted brick. This is how much it is per linear foot for trim. Um, so that hypothetically, if we measure it now, it'll be more consistent. Yeah. Um, so I took it upon myself rather than I tasked him with doing it. Didn't go so well. I took it back over and now I'm having him outline our actual sales process, uh, which again, I did. I've done some of that already, but what does it actually look like from beginning to end? How should it look? all of our interactions with, with our customers. Mm -hmm. Do you find um, it's a different skill set for your, for you and your team, the plugging them into a system versus them helping you develop the system? Yeah. Well, it's a different skill set. And it's what I'm discovering is it's not a skill set that everyone has. Someone can, be, I, I feel like my personality is just, I'm very inquisitive and I want to make things better. And so I'm always thinking about, all right, what could we do differently? How could we, streamline this, make it more efficient, which is why when I was working for the other company, I didn't, I didn't wait for my old partner to give me all the answers. I said, ah, I can't wait for the answers. I want to make some money. And so I just, I just solved it. Not everyone's like that. Mm -hmm. People can be tremendous salespeople or project managers without that skill set. Um, but that just means <laughs> I got to have the freaking system in place yep. so that they can succeed. Yeah, if they're they work at a time. Just like me. Right. So yeah, it's a totally different skill set. It took you some time to figure out all the different production rates, you know, this type of soffit, this type of trim, these different types of sidings, you get your prep spots, you get your uh, linear rates, your square footage rates. Once you have all that set, how did you plug your guy into this new system? So right now we have, um, well, so it's a combination of two things. So we have a Google sheet with all of our pricing now. We have one for interior, exterior, cabinets, and then like ancillary services, decks and fences and all that, right? So everything has a line item. And of course, when I'm out doing an estimate, I'm like, oh, here's something that we do run into from time to time that we don't have numbers for. Uh, by the time we're done, it's gonna be hundred pages long of yeah. every possible scenario. And um, it still won't be complete. Um, but what we did is we actually, um, we have put a lot of that information now directly into drip jobs, which I did already have. You know, if you want to, if we're going to paint overhead doors, that line, line item was already in there with a per door price. Um, yep. There was a per square foot price for uh, power washing and staining decks. There's a per spindle price. You know, there's there's a lot of per item prices. What we didn't have was the per square footage pricing. Mm -hmm. We just had per section, which again, we were not counting the same. Totally fair. Um, but then you just you just made it work. You got them plugged in. And, and how's pricing now with your sales rep? I think it's better. Time will tell. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we got to wait for more jobs to be sold, more jobs to go into production, and then we'll we'll uncover whether things are more in line or not. And really, again, the, the test is going to be once we get back to exterior season and start yeah. producing those jobs. Yeah, those tell. are the big ones. Yeah. <laughs> so you said, I mean, when you brought on the sales rep, you could have done one of two things. You could have taken a little bit of a step back and just let them do the sales and maintain that similar trajectory. But you're like, hey, I'm Brad. I don't do that. I'm going to go twice as hard, twice as fast and get twice as much done. So you did the same volume and then became a sales coach and then had them running full time as well. 
Yeah, you and actually, I didn't even do the same volume. I, I'm, I'm having my record sales year ever, personally. Okay. What yeah. did you personally sell this year? And and uh, what do you expect your sales reps to, to sell in a year or per month moving forward? Yeah, right now I'm at like 1.8 million and we got a month and a half left. So uh, there's there's a chance that I could hit two. And my best year ever, personally, was 1.7, I think. Um, pretty big, Pretty big bump? Yep. Yeah. And I, again, I actually took, and that's with me taking the entire month of June and part of July off doing estimates when, uh, when my old project manager's daughter got sick. Yeah. So really my, my numbers were like off the charts. Uh, the goal for each salesperson would be one and a half million sold in the calendar year. And what types of, what did you do to prepare your lead flow when you're bringing on your sales rep? <laughs> Spent more money. <laughs> So spend more money on leads. What did that look like? So we evaluated where our money was going, um, where our best ROI was, uh, and whether there were other marketing tactics that we can employ to, to get more. So we, yeah. um, we expanded our Facebook and Google ads. We added um, the GLSA once that was um, up. Um, we expanded our door hanger and EDDM, the Every Door Direct Mail campaigns. Uh, and we signed up with Angie leads mm. we, we use that as basically a filler. So if our, my admin is instructed that if our estimate calendar is not full to then turn that on as she's available to answer the yep. phone and, uh, and take those leads as well. Yeah. Not, not ideal, but, uh, it's something that can work in a pinch, especially you have, you have budget to be able to spend at it, spend on it. Right. you don't want that to be your only source. No, no, though. Yeah. And my old company, that was our primary source. And we would we'd get almost $2 million a year in sales just from Post yeah. Home Advisor then. Yeah. Uh, we, we had a ton of reviews. We were number one rated in our area. Uh, it can be a very successful lead source if, if someone knows how to use it well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, not our, it's not that great for us, to be honest with you. The ROI is way lower than our other lead tactics. But if the option is to sell a job at 5X or not sell at all, I'll spend the money and get the five X. Yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the a salesperson, I mean, you mentioned hiring for values and that should always be number one for any role you hire. Uh, what type of person are you looking for in a, in a sales rep? So, you know, that's a good question. And another one that I'm still trying to iron out what the correct answer is. Jason Phillips is a big proponent of the disc profile. And uh, I think I'm actually going to have my current sales guy take that and implement it now with all recruiting and hiring before I actually pull the trigger on someone to see whether they are, whether they have the personality of a salesperson. Um, are they, are they driven? Um, are they self-motivated? Are they influential? You know, do, do people care about what they say? The, the salesperson, I think, especially if it's a, a commission-based role, which all of my salespeople will be, have got to be motivated at least by money. And I, at least a little bit, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't consider myself a greedy person, but I'll tell you as a sales guy, I would never take a job that wasn't hundred percent commission because I want, I know that I'm good at sales. I know I'm going to sell jobs and I want to make as much money as possible for the time that I'm spending. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and that is the type of person that you, that you want to find someone that is motivated by money while still maintaining their integrity and not lying to make it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and that there's definitely a balance there because you're the sales rep is promising things that you have to fulfill on, mm-hmm. right? So there can't be any of that. Um, 
any of that sort of uh, fluffing around the edges when it comes to values and integrity. Yep. And I, and I want someone that's likable. I want yeah. someone that my customers are going to enjoy having in their house. And I, I definitely have that with my current sales guy. Uh, he's probably a lot more likable than I am. Uh, but we've had this discussion with him that maybe he's too likable. Because what I hear from a lot, the feedback from a lot of our customers, he gets, he gets a lot more no's than I do. Meaning people actually respond and say they're not moving forward with us. I have a lot of my estimates that they just never respond, right? So he gets a higher response rate. And the feedback that we get that I get about him is, oh, hey, thanks for coming out. Mark is such a great guy. He's such an asset to your company. We had such a blast talking about Michigan State and his family. Um, uh, by the way, we hired someone else. So it's great that he's get, I'm getting good feedback that our potential customers like him, but he's spending more time in a house than I do. Uh, he's spending more time and effort building rapport, which can be a very valuable thing, but only if it's actually converting into a higher close rate. He's right? getting friend zoned. Right. He's getting friend zoned. Yeah. And uh, I don't get friend zoned because people don't want to be my friend. I guess. <laughs> no, but real talk, you know, I, I think that I give a good first impression. Mm -hmm. I come, come across very confident, um, assertive without being aggressive. And so I build rapport very quickly. They just get a sense, I think, that I know what I'm talking about. And if they hire me, they're going to get what they're paying for. They still say no two out of three times because my price is too high. Uh, but I'm I'm in and out within 10 or 15 minutes, getting everything that I need, sending the estimate out. And 35 to 40% of the time they say yes. Yep. Uh, you're not you're not presenting the job on the spot. So we started doing that a little bit this summer. And then when uh, when Ron's daughter got sick and we just didn't have time, uh, he, we switched back to just emailing the estimate later. Mm -hmm. The plan is to go back to in-home presentations, but we haven't done that yet. I do occasionally. Yeah. But also when we were doing them, it's it's very it's very low pressure. It's all right. I'm gonna get what I need. Let me get my pictures and measurements. I'll go out to the Jeep. I'll piece it all together, and then I'll come back in and show you what what we got. And I would come back in and I would run through the run through the proposal, show them all the pictures, why I took them, the notes I made. And then I would simply ask, you know, um, any questions? No. Okay. Uh, well, would you like to get into the lineup? And if they say no, I say, all right, well, it's already in your email inbox and in your, uh, in your phone via text message. Uh, I'll continue to follow up with each to let me know when you're ready to move forward. And that's it. I, I think that's just, that's just so surprising. I mean, that's awesome. But it's surprising to me that you're selling, you sold 1.8 this year without doing most of the sales from the from the kitchen table. Like that's definitely a buck in the trend. It is. And when when Jason Paris came to visit me last year, he wrote around on some, uh, some of my sales calls. And he admitted he was prepared to tell me that I need to do in-home presentations. Yep. But when he saw the way that I was interacting with the customers and looked at my numbers, he's like, well, maybe you don't need to. Yep. But maybe my sales guys do need to. True. Yeah, maybe. if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But yeah, it, it just because it works for you doesn't necessarily mean it's a system that's going to work for others. Correct. Because you do, you know, as the founder, you got the last name on the sign. You're you're confident. It's hard to it's hard to hire out or emulate that, that same, you know, Brad Allison, uh, experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sweet. So when it comes to recruiting and interviewing, I'm going to go back a step there. And you're talking about values, right? Values and, uh, and ethics. What are some of the questions that you ask around bringing on a, a high values individual? Mm -hmm. 
So I keep it pretty simple and I explain what our five core values are, uh, what they mean to me and my company. And then I ask how that resonates with them. Are there any that jump out that they really love or any that they, you know, don't really understand or maybe don't agree with. And just based on that, you kind of get a gut feel. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Now, uh, again, full disclosure, my recruiting and, and onboarding process to date is like, um, <laughs> hey, God, I need a sales guy. Who you got? And then someone introduces me to a sales guy and I hire him. And it, for the most part, that has worked out. Uh, I understand that that is not duplicatable or repeatable or scalable. And so my Q4 rock is to actually establish uh, an actual onboarding and, or uh, recruiting, onboarding and and training process for our salespeople and PMs. Gotcha. So, and then, and then I would ask questions. And again, I've done this in other roles, so I, I know how to do it. Um, it would ask questions, you know, can you give me an example of a time that you had a conflict with a customer and how you resolved it? Yep. Just basically looking at their past actions and mm -hmm. um, using those to determine future actions. Yep. Suppose a, a crew dropped the ball on this project in this way. Um, how do you think we we would respond to a customer in that situation? You know, situational questions. Yeah, love those situational questions. Those are super helpful. Um, onboarding and training. You find this guy, great fit, very green. What's the first thirty days look like? So I guess it would it would depend on his um, proficiency and his knowledge of the industry. If it's someone that's coming from the industry, the the training process could be very very short. Uh, it's simply a few day ride along with myself or one of my salespeople to kind of see how we run the show. Um, it's providing them with all of our SOPs and, and sales outlines and presentations. Um, it's riding along with them for a couple of days to watch them in action, see what we're doing. And then it's off to the races. I, I really believe in letting people try rather than training them for, you know, training someone for a month to be a sales guy. Sounds like a lot of wasted time and opportunity. Just it's throw them in the fire. Yep. And, and again, this maybe this is um, ignorance on my part because that's how I operate. It's like, give me the outline. Let me go try it. I'm going to figure out what's working and what isn't and let and then ask for help when I need it. Um, and not everyone's going to respond that way. But I think that uh, what I've found uh, in this company and in other companies in which I've hired salespeople is if you equip people with the things they need, they are going to do better on their own more quickly if you let them fail, try and fail without you looking over their shoulder, because it's embarrassing, right? I remember when I had my first sales job when I was selling life insurance and I was learning how to do that. And I got my sales manager sitting next to me at this table with these customers. And I'm, I'm trying to sell this life insurance policy and I'm stumbling and I don't really care what the customer thinks because they don't know when I screw up, but this guy knows every line that I'm supposed to say and what comes next. And if I screw up, now I'm messed up in my brain. I don't know where to go. And now he's got to jump in and save me. Once I was on my own and I didn't have my sales manager with me, it didn't matter if I stumbled over anything. The customer doesn't know, right? So it allows me to it allowed me to make some mistakes, uh, keep my brain clear, and start making some money. Yep. So you're you're more of a fan of let people fail on their own and then ask for help when they when they come across issues. Did you do any number checks with the with the guys kind of right when they started? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we track the numbers. How many estimates are you given? What's your what's your what are your sales numbers for the week? We track everything on our weekly scorecard. So we know, 
how many estimates they gave, how many they closed, that how many that closed that week. Because we don't don't do the in-home presentations, our numbers are always a little skewed, right? Because there's like a yeah. two-week delay. But in general, it works out. How many estimates, how many acceptances, how much in revenue sold. And what do you what do you first question, like what's your compensation structure for them? So I uh, I when we bring someone on board, I give them three options for a comp plan and then they get to choose. Love that. I love that model. I'm huge yeah. fan of it. Yeah. And then my project manager roles, of course, they have a base at every level um, plus a percentage of revenue and all that. For sales guys, it starts, you know, at a certain dollar as a, as a base plus a small commission. And then there's a middle base, middle commission, and then no base and higher commission. Um, plus, of course, vehicle and phone and and all that good stuff and as many Ellison painting t-shirts as they want. Yep. Um, and so Mark, yeah, yeah. Mark, when he came on board, chose the hundred percent commission, which again, I think is the smart move. If you're good at sales, you'll make more money. 100%. Yeah. Sorry. 10% sales. Uh, no. So he gets, uh, he gets 15% of, of, uh, gross profit. Okay. So that's like, if you're, if you're rocking a 50%, Gross profit, that's a seven and a half percent sales. Yeah, we're closer to 42%, so closer to 6% overall. But it also now comes with health insurance and the vehicle and, and everything yep. else. So, I mean, that's that if you hit that 1.5 million, you're rocking 112,000 plus benefits. Yeah, you can make money. A great job. Yeah, that's the best thing about sales. Right. And honestly, I think that this is the easiest sales job that anyone could possibly have. Uh, not not to downplay it, because I know that there's a lot of your listeners that are that struggle to sell. But within my company, like I have someone that's scheduling all of our estimates for us. Yeah. So literally, all we have to do is show up, inbound role, meet the customer. The estimates are pretty much all the language is already written. We have automated follow ups. It's compared to what I've done in the past with yep. cold calling and, and beating people down and objections and rebuttals. Uh, I think it's a relatively easy sales role. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it can be for the right person. That's for sure. Right. The wrong person, it can be absolute death. <laughs> sure. Very frustrating. Yeah. How many estimates a week do you uh, expect your sales reps to be able to do? Uh, 25 a week, five a day. 25 per week, five per day. That's a good, that's a good clip. Mm -hmm. And what are your KPIs that you expect of from them? Kind of every after 30 days, after 60 days, after 90 days. So the goal is one out of three. So 33% close rate is is really good for us um we track average job size average job size should be over five thousand. sometimes a sales guy doesn't have a ton of control over that uh, we just we just check the trends um some lead sources generally have smaller job sizes uh if it's a big um like i sold two big condo exteriors this this year hoas mm -hmm. uh, you know, one's 50,000, one's 65,000. Obviously, that makes my average job size go up. Um, so uh, it, it's essentially number of estimates they gave, close rate, average job size. That's pretty much it. Beauty. Um, we do track We do track the, the gross profit. So the I only pay a commission on projects where the gross profit was over 38%. And that's, to, that's to protect me. If, you know, there are these projects that... Um, sometimes are underbid, some of mine too, right? Uh, but there were a couple that were pretty low that I can't justify paying a commission out on it. That's, and I'm coming even more out of pocket. That's a good standard to have that minimum 
gross profit to pay a commission on it. Mm-hmm. Totally agree with that. Um, I had another question I was going to pose just around that specific topic. Yeah, no outbound at all, which is pretty sweet. And uh, yeah, they don't have to, they're just kind of, they're teed up. Uh, any other, I like the weekly scorecard. I think that's huge, tracking them every week. So you do a weekly one-on-one with each sales rep? Well, we do a weekly uh, leadership team meeting. And okay. that's where everyone reports their numbers. So sales, PMs, admins, we all talk. I remember about my question. Yeah. Uh, it's it's about payment timelines. So if you're waiting to figure out what the gross margin is going to be on that project, when does the sales rep get paid for that job? So I pay everyone once a month and it's all based on jobs that were completed and paid by the last day of the month. Okay. So there is, so once someone starts, it might be a little while till they start getting paid. Yes. Okay. And hasn't been any issues with that typically? Um, there has not. Uh, again, Mark was in a unique situation where um, his wife was working and he didn't really need to get the money right up front. Um, I certainly offered some scenarios and some situations where he, uh, he could mm-hmm. get some money up front. Um, I've done that at my last company. I did a, uh, a they, are, they get 50% of their commission uh, projected commission yeah. when the job closes and we get the deposit and then the other half or whatever is remaining yeah. um, when the job closes and, and pays. Okay. So that's a way for people to, for sales guys to start making money right away. Um, you know, when I started in the painting industry, someone for the other company, it was like four months before I got my first paycheck. But again, I was in a unique situation where I, I was fine with that. My yeah. wife and I had some money. I didn't need the money right away. And I trusted that once it started was started to come in, it would continue to come in and then I would be fine. And that is the case. That's been the case for Mark. Um, but that, that's certainly a, a huge obstacle to overcome if someone doesn't have four months worth of living money just sitting yeah. around the bank account, right? So I, I would certainly explore all those options. But also we give them three options for a compensation plan. And yep. if they if they need a base pay, no problem. Yeah. The nice one. thing I like about that is about having them choose their comp plan is that they're mm-hmm. way more bought into their comp plan instead of yep. just saying, "Here's how I'm going to pay you." Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was that was a pretty in depth overview of uh, of sales reps. Anything you feel like I missed? Uh, so the the other thing that I failed at, we talked about everything that I failed at in, in bringing on and managing sales guys. The other thing I failed at is the uh, ongoing training. So a close friend of mine identified that I may not have the skill or the will to be a sales trainer, at least in my current role. The, re- the reality is, and you know this as well as I do, and almost everyone listening, if they own a business, can relate to this. I have a million things I'm doing. I'm doing a full load of estimates. I'm doing just as many estimates as my sales guy. Plus, I'm managing all of our marketing relationships. Plus I'm managing my project managers and I'm, I'm putting out fires that only the owner can put out. And I'm being interviewed on podcasts and yeah. doing PCA marketing committee and all, all these other responsibilities that I have on top of being a dad and a husband and everything else. So what I, what I didn't have the, t- the tolerance for us and I didn't make time for was one-on-one personal development for my salesperson. Um, he needed it. 
I didn't have the, I certainly didn't have the will for it. I, I probably do have the skill. I mean, I've trained so many salespeople over the years. Uh, I probably do have the skill. I didn't have the will, admittedly. That is one thing that I would like to do when I'm actually able to transition away from giving estimates. And that's that's an area where I actually think I could bring a lot of value to Ellison Painting. So if I'm not in the field estimating, I could ride along with each of my three sales guys once every other week for a full day. See what's going on. Can I identify any sticking points? Uh, give them any tips or tricks? Can we increase the numbers that way? Can we have one-on-one -on -one, um, individual training here in the office? Well, if I have the time because I'm not doing a million other things, then the answer is absolutely yes. And that would benefit me, my company, and of course, my sales guys a lot more. So ongoing training is important. If, if you don't have the bandwidth to do it yourself, you should probably provide resources for that other pay for them to have sales training or a sales coach. Um, but I discovered that that that's something that I definitely dropped the ball on. It cost Mark and it cost me obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I found, I'm in a similar spot in my company. Um, I have two and a half sales reps and um, I could, I could be taking on sales still as well, but, mm -hmm. and, and I know that I can sell at a, a you know, really good rate because I'm, you know, the owner and the founder and the name and face and all that. But I don't like I actively like if I have someone who even like tees up and wants to like talk to me, I, I give that softball to my sales team because that mm -hmm. like that boosts their confidence and they get the commission. And and plus I is valuable as that time is for me to make another sale. It's a I know that it's counterproductive, right? There's better things that I could be doing, but it's it's hard to to want to make that shift. <laughs> it is. And I, and I don't think that I'm one of those guys that has like a control issue. I don't think you do either. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I will be happy when I'm not doing that, or I don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I do like doing it. So I could see as long as I'm not taking opportunities away from my sales guys, I could see myself doing a day's day worth of estimates every week. Mm -hmm. I like doing it and I'm good at it. Um, but I've had to do it up to this point. And so I have done it. Um, I would, I would love if I could fully replace myself in the field. And then some, I mean, the goal next year is 5 million. And so if, if I'm taking 2 million off the plate, right now, well, I need three sales guys that are each doing over one and a half to, to pull yep. it off. And that, yeah, three guys doing one and a half, you know, say they each come in at one, 1. 1.4, right? That's, um, that's 4.2, I think something like mm -hmm. that. So then you have to come up, come up with that other 800, which is, you know, one day a week, I think for you. I think I, could, I think I could do it. Yeah. Especially if you're working the bigger projects, the property managers and the stratas and stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, that was awesome. I, I learned a lot. <laughs> I uh, I feel like like I, every time I have one of these conversations, I'm like, man, I should just start a painting company again. <laughs> it's never uh, it's never quite as easy. I, I talked to Eric, um, Eric Foz, uh, on yeah. just a couple of days ago, and uh, after I talked to him, I was like, okay, I'm glad I'm not starting a painting company again because <laughs> he's just doing it. Well. He's starting a painting company while he's still running his marketing agency. That's, that's and he had never run a painting company before. Right. If you quit what you're doing now and started a painting company, you, I mean, you'd scale as quickly as I did. Likely, but I wouldn't want to shut down painter growth, right? I would have to keep that going. Right, exactly. Why would you? Yeah. And uh, then I have to sacrifice family time and I'm not prepared to do that. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to the next part I wanted to chat about with you today. Uh, being a family man, super important to you, super important to me too. I mean, it's it's always number one. 
uh, for me. I will get the family stuff done before I even touch work for the day. Um, how do you, how do you, I know you're, you're business in a position right now where it doesn't need you a ton of time, like a lot, you're not working 60 hours a week, but mm -hmm. even when it did, how did you, uh, prioritize your family first? Like what were some of the activities that you made sure you always did as a family and, and, uh, just how did you structure that? Well, one myth that I'll push back on before I answer that question is that when you launch a company, your company will demand 60 hours a week. I never worked 60 hours a week for Ellison Painting. Even in the in the heat of it, when my wife and I first launched it, when when Ron um, had to step away because his daughter was sick, I was not working 60 hours a week. I won't do it. Won't do it. I would I would much rather sacrifice revenue than sacrifice my time. Okay, I'm not a workaholic. I, yep. I, I love what I do, but I, I love others doing other stuff more. So the the non-negotiables for us, um, I, I don't know if I shared this on your show last time, but um, I guard my schedule pretty, pretty tightly. And it's unusual for me to have any work responsibilities or estimates or anything scheduled after 2.30. Um, 2.30 rolls around, I wrap up what I need to wrap up. And I get to the gym by about 3.15 because I try to work out every day at 3.30. There's a 3.30 class workout from 3.30 to 4.30, and I'm home by 5. And so the first – that's one kind of non-negotiable. Uh, I've worked out every day this year, and I don't plan on stopping it for the foreseeable future. So I will get a workout in at some point. Now, there are days, of course, where there is something in the afternoon. And so I just – okay, where in my calendar can I fit in a workout? I just do it. Um, more importantly than all that, though, and part of the reason why I like doing a 3.30 class is that allows me then to get home by around 5 o'clock every single day. And we do family dinners sitting around our kitchen table, our dining room table, nearly every day. Um, again, there's always exceptions, but that is our, our normal is family dinner, TV off, phones away, the four of us sitting around the table and eating dinner together. Um, that's that's our normal. I think if it was everyone's normal, families would be a lot healthier. Um, not going to cast judgment on people that that don't do that, but the people that I know that do do that seem to have healthier marriages and certainly healthier relationships with their kids and healthier families in general. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree. I mean, that's it's it, it's weird if like my wife has to work late or has like an evening event and like, we're not all at the table together. Um, but we also do breakfast together. And that's, I think a little bit more unusual. So, so we, we kind of do too. I mean, our, our morning routine, we have a daughter that's in first grade and a, a three and a half year old son. And you're so like, you're like one year ahead of me with your kids ages, I think my yeah. three and a half and four and a half. Nice. Yeah. Um, fun ages, by the way, also frustrating ages. <laughs> we, uh, we all wake up around the same time. Um, my alarm goes off at 7 a.m., so I'm, not, I'm also not an early riser. And uh, wake up. My wife starts making, preparing breakfast for everyone. Uh, I'm in the kitchen as well because I make lunch for my daughter to take to school every single day. And we are all in the kitchen for that time period. We got about 15 to 20 minutes, everyone together. So we don't sit down necessarily and eat breakfast together, but we are all together in the morning. Nice. Um, and I, I like I like that as a start to the day too. Right. We have, we have a routine. Yep. Yeah. I love it, man. It really like helps 
get the pulse going with the family. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would encourage anyone who, if they, you know, no matter how busy things are in the business, just like try to see what you can do to restructure your day to at least make one of those happen, preferably mm -hmm. dinner. Like if you can sit down together for dinner, it's a magical thing to get that in the routine. Uh, I think it was Jason that started this, but you're, you're all about it now. And that's the, the weekly family meetings. Yeah. You want to tell me about that? Yeah. The family meetings are incredible. So before I knew Jason Paris, uh, we had, we had hooked up on a Zoom call with a couple other painting contractors, and I didn't know who he was. Uh, I thought I was a big shot because I was running this company that was doing like two and a half million. And <laughs> turns out I'm on the phone with Jason Paris, who is, you know, his companies at that point combined were doing like 30 million. And um, one of the other four attendees was Jason Phillips doing 14 or 15 million. And uh, that was like my, my first eye-opening experience. Like, whoa, I don't know anything about this industry. <laughs> These guys are doing it. How do I learn? So immediately how after that, that, how did that humble pie taste? Oh, it was great. It was it was satisfying, Mike. Yeah. I mean, I thought we were the biggest company in the world at the time. I'm like, I didn't see a I didn't see a path to anything greater. Yep. Right. So then I just reach out to Jason Paris right after that. I'm like, hey, I know you don't know me, but can I can I come up to Minneapolis and spend a day with you and see what the heck you guys are doing? And not knowing me, he said yes. Uh, not knowing me, he, he offered to let me stay over at his house, which I didn't take him up on because I didn't want to get him in trouble with his wife. Uh, but I, I flew up the day after Christmas. That was 2021. Yeah, 2021. And I spent a day with him. And it happened to be a day that he was going to be doing his family meeting at his house. So he said, you know, we're doing family dinner at my house. We do this family meeting once a week. It happens to be tonight. You, I would love if you came and joined us. You don't have to, but if you if you don't have plans, come join us. I'm like, heck yeah. So I went over for dinner and I actually participated that night in their family meeting. And, you know, for you, kind of the, the cliff notes is you talk about your family mission. You talk about the highs of the week, the lows of the week. You talk about your, your finances and you share that with your kids upcoming uh, house projects, the schedule for the upcoming week, um, talk a little bit about personal development. The, the best part is you go around the table and you get you solicit compliments from other people. So you get to ask two people, two other people in your family to give you compliments. Um, you, after that, you do a, a silly family photo and then everyone that participated gets dessert, right? So I was just blown away with how his family, his kids were responding to that. And they, they've been doing it every week. And so I took on the challenge. I said, all right, I'm going to implement this with my family. So I got home and we started doing it. Now there was a period, we did it pretty faithfully for like six months. And then there was a period where, uh, when we, when we launched the business and then I was out of town and we had renovations going on in our house, our, our rhythm got really messed up. And so we, we didn't do it for a while. But now we're back on. It is every week. So I think we're at meeting number 66. It's Monday right now, right? So family meeting tonight will be family meeting 66 or 67. And it's, I mean, it's something I look forward to every week. And um, it, what I like is that it, it allows us to talk about our schedule. It allows us each to share good and bad stuff and receive feedback. Uh, I like talking to the kids about finances. Uh, my family never did that. And I think it's important. They know that we can talk about money and, um, the value of it, 
uh, and sometimes the unimportance of it in some situations. Uh, it's it's just a good time to actually connect with substance uh, with your family. Mm-hmm. So you've been doing it for about five quarters now. What have you noticed change within any sort of behaviors within your family because of it? So my um, the, the compliments has been really valuable. It's just saying positive things to each other uh, is just in general good. And we're my family is generally a very positive family anyway. It's not like we're cutting each other down. <laughs> well, my kids are like always bickering and my son is calling me Mr. Cookie Butt and all that. But in general, in general, a pretty positive uh, family. But this is an opportunity to really think. What is something that you're noticing about another family member that you can share with them so that they they feel encouraged? Um, it also allows us with the sharing the the upcoming schedule for the week. Um, I think kids really benefit from um, the expected. So if they know that daddy's not going to be home. Um, for one one of the dinners because he's going out with whatever, then they're not freaking out as much when and sad when I leave, right? If they know I'm going out of town uh, to go speak at something, they know I'm going to be gone for two or three weeks. Nothing sprung upon them. We're just constantly letting them know what's going on. Uh, I think it, it makes it makes your kids a lot more mature. I think kids can handle a lot more than we tend to give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've we've seen a lot of growth in our kids over the past five quarters. Now, again, they're at these ages where they would have shown growth anyway, three and a half and six, you yeah. know, <laughs> uh, and Simon, Simon's still not really participating in the meetings. He's a little obstinate, little bugger. Um, he's, like, three and a half year old? he's he, yeah, he's a three and a half year old. Okay. Yeah. But get, when he doesn't participate, he doesn't get dessert. Yeah. And he, he makes that choice and there's a consequence. Yeah. And that's that's a good lesson in itself, right? And it's not like it's hard. He does, it's not like he's expected to, you know, help with the budgeting. Nope. <laughs> right? But if you don't want to sit at the table, if yep. uh, if you don't want to answer what the best part and worst part of your week was, that's okay. If you don't want to give a compliment to someone when they ask, you don't have to. Um, but you also don't get dessert. Yep, I love that teaching consequences in a in a very easy way early. Uh, that's yeah, in a, in a controlled setting too, right? Mm-hmm like that a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, I know family's always been important to you. I mean, since since knowing you for the last few months, um, it's obvious that family's super important to you, more important than business, more important than anything. How do you feel that trickles down into how you operate your company and, and the direction of the company? So the Ellison painting is a vehicle for freedom for the Ellisons. It's a way to make the money that we want to make that would provide for the type of life that I want to provide for my family. Um, I want Ellison Painting to be a vehicle, that same vehicle for all the people that are working with and for me, from my employees to my subcontractors. And so that I, I want, I'm trying to change my family legacy in how I was parented, you know, particularly by my dad, um, the the financial situation that I grew up in. Well, you know, we weren't poor, but I didn't have, like my kids are living the freaking dream compared <laughs> to what I had, right? Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to actively change the legacy that I inherited of divorce, dysfunction, absenteeism, financial struggle, all that. 
what's been really rewarding is that I've seen other other people working with me that are now doing the exact same thing. I mean, a lot of my subcontractors are making over six figures. They're making more money they've ever made in their life. And now they're having kids and, and they're getting married and they're buying houses. They're, they're now benefiting uh, and helping to change their family legacy through their interaction with us. So my family is important. And when, when have, if I had to choose between my family and anyone else's, obviously I'm going to choose mine, but very rarely is it, should it ever be as a business owner, my family's, um, my family's benefit over someone else's. It should be both. And what we found is that the more open-handed that we live with our employees and our subcontractors, the more money we end up making anyway. Right. I mean, I got these guys that are making over six figures paying for us. You think they're ever going to leave? You think they're going to like decide to just, all right, well, we don't need Brad anymore. We're just going to go start selling our own jobs. And now we're going to start spending money in marketing and do it. Sounds like a some probably sounds like a nightmare to them. Yeah. Well, the more loyalty that we get from them simply by acting with integrity and generosity, in the long run, it just benefits Ellison Painting all the more. So, and we obviously family is important to me, but um, my people's and families are important to me as well. Yeah, I think that's a great way to to think about business, not in just a how much bottom line profit can I make, but how much how much bottom line profit can I make while also enriching the lives that of every, all the other stakeholders within the business. Not even necessarily financially, but you know that helps to uh, you know with the clients enriching their lives, making their lives better when you leave. I think, I think the mistake that some some companies make yep. is they try to think about how little they can pay their subs in order to increase their profit margins. And my mindset has been, and hopefully forever will continue to be, how much can I pay my subs while still maintaining the profit margin that I need to grow the way we need to grow? Hmm. And I think that it may seem like a very small uh, shift in your mindset. Like maybe there's a minor difference there, but I think the intention behind it is very different. I don't wanna figure out how to pay my guys less. I want to figure out how to pay them more while we can, while we still continue to make the margins that we need to be a real company. A quick uh, story on that. I have a client in um, West Virginia and he says the average painter rate in his area is like 16 to 18 bucks an hour, right? 20 bucks for like a super experienced painter. And we're, I'm talking about to him through his financials. He's got a $71 an hour charge out rate. So mm -hmm. we're doing the numbers. I'm like, man, you can afford to pay your painters like 26 bucks an hour. And like, you can still keep a 50% gross margin. He's like, Mike, if I pay my painters 26 bucks an hour, my painters will be the highest paid painters in the state. Like, that sounds like a good thing to me. Great. <laughs> yeah. Guess Go how get the best gonna be to find more painters. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You'll find the best painters and they're going to work with you forever and they're going to love it and they're going to help you grow your business. Yeah. This is a great time, man. Thanks for uh, hopping on today. Uh, I know you protect your time and I appreciate you spending a bit of it with me. Yeah, it's a good time spent, my man. You're worth it, of course. Wicked. Well, uh, we'll just have to get you on round three before Nick. Hey, yo. I'm, I want to be number one. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for listening to the Painter Growth Podcast. If you want to grow your painting business, go to www.paintergrowth.com or click on the top link in the description. Talk soon.